votes. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. This year, the podcast turns five years old. It's been an absolute pleasure to tell the tales of so many trans people from the past in that time. And to celebrate, this year I'll be bringing a new feature to the podcast. While I'd love to take credit for inventing trans history studies, that's obviously far from the case. In fact, there are so many people doing fascinating work on trans history, and I'm lucky to call quite a few of them friends and collaborators. So in addition to occasional regular episodes of OFTV, I'll be bringing you interviews with historians, artists, filmmakers, and other trans people working with trans history in a wide variety of mediums. Our first special interview is with Zachary Drucker, the co-director of the new HBO docu-series, The Lady and the Dale. She was nominated for an Emmy for her work as a producer on the series Transparent, and her video, performance art, and photography have been curated around the world, including at the 2014 Whitney Biennial. We first met in Toronto in 2011, I think, and more recently she starred in the feature film I co-wrote with director Chase Joint called Framing Agnes, which, if the coronavirus ever lets us, will be coming to a screen near you soon. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Zachary Drucker, the co-director of The Lady and the Dale. The Dale, the first space-age car. Three wheels. The Dale. Built like a tank, rides like a rocket, blasts to the moon and beyond. The most exciting new car of the century. The Dale. Built by me. I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, but I'm a genius. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, your new HBO series, The Lady and the Dale, tells the story of Liz Carmichael, a particularly wild figure from the 70s that I'm obsessed with, um, that as you know, I've covered on my podcast in an episode call, called um, The Best Car Never Built. Um, can you start by telling me a bit about Liz's story? Like, give us a bit of a refresher. Who is she? What happened? Of course. I'm, well, thank you so much for having me, Morgan, first of all. I love you, and I'm thrilled to geek out on the Liz Carmichael story. Liz, in 1974, burst onto the national stage uh, pedaling a three-wheeled car at the height of the oil crisis when America was just, uh, you know, beleaguered by anxiety. Um, you know, there was a lot of fear that gasoline would be not available to people and people wouldn't be able to get to work. And it was just this kind of fever pitch in the 73, 74, 75. And Liz promised to fix all of that with a yellow three-wheeled car that got 70 miles to the gallon. Um, 
it never had a chance really to succeed. Liz, you know, was very quickly investigated by Dick Carlson and Pete Noyes, um, who had an investigative, uh, I guess it was like an investigative reporting on, on local television. And they started to uh, really kind of pick apart Liz's company and then her. They started looking into, you know, who is this woman? They found very quickly that there was no record of her before 1970 and they kept digging and, and eventually discovered that she was a wanted felon on the run and had been pursued by the FBI for like 14 years. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the, the kind of basic setup of the story. Um, and her downfall, of course, is um, epic. And we look at the whole scope of her life though, from beginning to end and also examine some of the reverberations today, you know, the reasons why her story remains prescient to, to trans life in 2021. Yeah, I was really um, excited about how much detail you were able to uncover. When I did my episode ages ago, like, I mean, I don't do the deepest dives on this show, let's be honest, because I'm churning them out. But, um, you know, <laughs> there wasn't tons that was publicly available. There were a few write-ups of like, what a yeah. odd story. What a strange character. Mostly actually from like car enthusiasts who mm -hmm. have kept this like torch burning for the car that never was. Um but in particular, I was struck by how much detail you got out of her later life um, and the relationships you built with her family on the in the show. Can you talk about um, kind of what was your process around unearthing all this information, how you tracked people down? When I made my show, I wasn't even sure she was actually dead. I thought, well, maybe this is another scam. <laughs> It's widely rumored. I mean, it's been widely rumored on the internet that Liz Carmichael is alive, in fact, and edits her own Wikipedia page and manages her own, uh, you know, profile on the internet, um, which is funny. And part of that is because there was no death certificate found. There's also no birth certificate. Like so many trans and gender expansive people, it seems like local municipalities destroyed official, you know, evidence of, of people's existence. And Liz is, is no exception. There's, there's so many curious uh, erasures of her identity, but of course she received so much publicity in the media and especially in the auto world. She was extensively reported on by Walt Warren who owned, um, Oh, auto news. We, we, I forget which one it is. It's in the episode. Uh, it's, it's a car magazine. And, uh, and libertarian magazines too. Yeah. She was, Liz was actually, I mean, Liz was like in the mix in, in early libertarian circles in Los Angeles. She was the keynote speaker at the first, uh, 
community gathering of libertarians at like the Hilton Hotel and, you know, in the 70s. And yeah, she was she was kind of um, communing with with some of those early figures in the libertarian movement. Um, Liz also <laughs> obsessed with uh, the Waco survivors and later in life, that was a community that she found uh, common ground with. She would, she would go to these gatherings of, of survivors of the Waco uh, shooting. Um, ultimately, the origin story of this project is my co-director, Nick Camilleri, saw the Unsolved Mysteries episode in 2011 and became low-key obsessed would live and the story and started to dig and over you know seven years he amassed this incredible archive he bought everything he could find on ebay um in terms of source materials he uh started to access fbi files which needed to be unsealed a lot of these things took years to do um, he procured the, the archive of, of that auto news journalist um, and created a network of, of people who knew Liz, the engineers, uh, law enforcement, the, the lawyers from her trial, Dick Carlson, who he interviewed in 2016. And eventually Liz's family, and they were very guarded, obviously. I think it's fascinating, you know, that trans and non-binary people have been pilloried in the media for so long, but as individuals mm. and with Liz's family, they are a whole constellation of lives who were impacted by transphobia and her grandkids are our age. They're in their 30s. I think they're mostly younger than me, even though like late 20s and in their 30s. Mm-hmm. And their lives have been mired by transphobia, by, you know, like they, yeah, so many trans people have been satellites in lives. But the fact mm-hmm. that Liz had a huge family unit meant that they were all impacted by the reverberation. Um, so it was hard to gain their trust. It, it did take years. Um, and then, of course, those are the interviews that anchor our whole story because they give us insight into who Liz was as a human being, not not just as a headline. Yeah. And how did you become involved with the project? So like Nick did all this research. He spent years obsessing over it. Uh, and then like scene missing you and I have dinner in London and you tell me that you're involved in this like how did you get there (laughs) um Nick paired with two producers Alan Bain and Andre Gaines and they brought it to Duplass Brothers Productions and once uh they gauged interest from HBO uh, Jay Duplass called me up and and told me the story about Liz and I was surprised to have never heard of her. I was 
skeptical at first. I thought, why this story? It was shortly after the rub and tug Scarlett Johansson Mm -hmm. controversy. And I think I was like, what is it about these obscure, you know, um, (laughs) these obscure uh, criminal trans people who participated in organized crime or white collar crime um, and the fascination with that. And I just had so much to learn and there was so much to unpack. And of course, one of the first things I found was your podcast. And I was like, Morgan always gets there first. She's like, you know, you're so on top of it. And I listened to that and it was all so curious. I mean, it was just a big question mark, like, you know, and I was led by that curiosity of just, trying to understand who was this person really. The assertion that Liz was a man masquerading as a woman to commit fraud was so persistent that it outlasted her life. You know, Mm -hmm. like it almost, it was like we had to just establish that she was trans first (laughs) because it was so the dominant narrative, even in doing our interviews with all the tertiary male characters they like they didn't even understand that she was trans they just also thought that Liz was you know Jared Michael up to no good um and that Liz was this con you know this advanced way to evade law enforcement and um you know of course that was a myth that had been perpetuated for decades yeah, I'm really interested in this um, sort of moment you were saying around like the trans criminal or like the trans ne'er do well. Obviously, like I live in the UK where trans people are wildly under attack. Um, and mm-hmm. I think there's a certain hesitancy around people here to talk about what we might call the negative effective realm of like trans life. Um, But as an artist and a writer, I'm very interested in people who have lived maybe um, more difficult or complicated lives while being trans. What is there in there for you? Like, what is your kind of feeling on it? Is it, um, what interests you about people who are maybe not the like capital H heroes superhero type of people that we would normally think of when we look to figures like Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera? There's so much to unpack, I think, um, because Liz's identity as a trans woman was so conflated with being a criminal and having a criminal record. It felt very touchy and very tenuous in a way, like how do, you know, because truthfully her decisions were very likely impacted by her transness, by feeling out of sync with the world around her, by being resentful of respectable society. She was clearly very, um, I think, um, restless and angry in the early years of her life, trying to, you know, trying and failing at being a father and a husband and not transitioning until her, her 
40s, which was very typical of folks in her generation. She was born in 1927, the same year my grandmother was born. So I have, you know, this kind of gauge in my own life of like my grandmother, she was an old fashioned lady. <laughs> and, she, you know, and that's, that's the same point of origin for Liz, 1927. Um, so I think it's impossible to separate. I think for cis folks, they forget that we're trans before the transition, <laughs> you know, like that's something I notice a lot in having conversations around this show that most folks fail to, to recognize that Liz was always Liz and that she just wasn't expressing her true self in, in that first chapter of her life. And that it was probably inextricably linked to her actions and her desire to live outside of society. Um, of course, you know, libertarianism provides this perfect cover for her to, you know, not having official documentation, creating an identity, which is something that she had practiced and gotten very good at over the years as, as a felon on the run. And I also looked to Frances Thompson, the story of Frances Thompson in the last episode, which of course in the first cut was like a 15 minute segment where like there's so much to say. And we ended up editing it, you know, down to a very succinct bite. But Frances Thompson had so much in common with Liz. Um, you know, she too, had lived for many years as a woman in a community and testified in front of Congress uh, 10 years before being outed. She was among the first group of black women to testify in front of Congress after the Memphis massacre, which was one of the first big race riots after the civil war. And ultimately her outing was used as a part of the campaign to end radical reconstruction and her being outed became this huge media spectacle um, that was exploited and you know across national press and you can see it happening alongside the presidential election of that year so in the U.S. in 2020 as we we're making this project we were like whoa there is so much kind of relevant and, and parallel to the moment we're in currently. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but it was. <laughs> no, that was great. That was so great. Um, zooming out from this particular project, I would be remiss if I passed up the opportunity to talk about your other work um, a little bit. So, you know, one of the things I really love about your work as a whole, and I've been following your work for about 10 years now, I gotta say. Um, I know, we met 10 years ago in Toronto. I was just thinking yeah. about that. I was like, it was 2011. Yeah. It's really, um, it's been 10 years. <laughs> it really has been a minute. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I love about your work is this sort of um, engagement with the gaze that you have. Like there's also, there's often a almost confrontational uh, stance towards the idea of who is looking at whom in your work, like 
from whose perspective is the trans body seen often? So like this comes out in things like you will never be a woman or two trans in bed. Um, I just spent all morning looking at your <laughs> early video work. Um, <laughs> but it also seems those. like a through line into transparent and even the lady in the Dale. Um, as you've kind of made that move from uh, the more avant-garde um, art world into Hollywood, how has it been translating that sensibility for something a mainstream audience can engage in? I am I'm so grateful for this project because I feel at the end of the day that every that we made a project with so much integrity that we were able to rectify the, the injustice of how Liz was treated in the media in her lifetime. And I think the key to reframing how Liz was seen comes at the beginning of the last episode. Mm -hmm. So I had been sitting in these rooms with these guys talking, you know, who said the most derogatory things about not only Liz, but about trans people in general. And it was infuriating. I mean, there was times when I was, there was one time when I was literally crying behind the camera because one subject went on a rant of comparing trans people to pedophiles and practitioners of bestiality. And it, I was in this position where I was like, I can't, you know, like we need to get their honest truth and reactions, but to also not be in a capacity where I could just read the eyes off of these guys <laughs> and to be like, nobody's ever challenged them on this. Their ideas have not changed in 50 years. And I thought they're all gonna see this series. And ultimately, I want all of them to learn something in this. So that's a little bit of background. Yeah, and the, the, the fourth episode starts with Roger Scott, who is a news producer, who tells the story about Liz playing tennis in a tournament in La Jolla in 1976. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, Liz is a chain smoker. <laughs> she was not on the, she's not playing in an, a tennis turn. I was just like, this is ridiculous. And then I realized when he said La Jolla, I was like, he's talking about Renee Richards. And I was like, <laughs> did Dick Carlson go on to out Renee Richards? And is this guy sitting in front of me 50 years later with no consciousness that it was, he just says it in this like off the cuff, like, oh yeah. And then they went, out of this, it was just beyond me. I was like, the obliviousness to the human impact of these men's actions, it was flabbergasting. I was just, and so we used that as a device in the beginning of the fourth episode to just say like, we are going to redirect this conversation and we are going to claim this narrative as trans and gender expansive people like this it, enough like enough from these guys framing it I even had our editors put together like a transphobia reel at one point <laughs> for the third episode 
and we were like okay we have to you know we have to maintain some good guys in this story we can't like throw everybody under the bus but Mm -hmm. of course it was Liz's family who were you know like if if not for them it would have been impossible to counter that other narrative that Liz was a man that Liz was you know doing all of that to evade law enforcement and uh, I think also probably it was a learning process for her family to see the ways in which their lives had been infected by transphobia. And Liz was not connected to other trans people in her lifetime. She probably didn't talk about it much after the trial. You know, I think there was, on, on the part of her family, it was probably this thing that they, they didn't talk about much. It was just was who she was. So, yeah, all of that to say, I think reframing Liz and seeing her as a part of an entire trajectory of trans and non-binary people through time, um, it, it was, I think, you know, a big paradigm change, certainly. Yeah. In, in the scope of other, other things, you know, and in, in the scope of all the things that have been said about her. Yeah, that fourth episode is incredible. And I have to admit the I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it yet, but there's like a reveal around who Dick Carlson is and his yeah. relationship to people today. And I literally <laughs> gasped. <laughs> and then I started laughing and I couldn't stop. Yeah. Um, incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, it's it's Liz Carmichael is the trans boogeyman of one of the loudest mouthpieces for anti-trans ideology. Yeah, it's wild. Um, You just kind of talked a bit about uh, the fact that Liz probably didn't know any other trans people. She probably never really interacted with other trans people in her life. Um, But one of the things I really appreciate about all of the work that you've done is this very um, collaborative kind of tea for tea ethos that you have throughout all your stuff. Um, And in particular, I've always been struck by the sort of long-term relationships you've built with trans elders, like Flawless Sabrina, Holly Woodlawn, um, and more recently with your really beautiful photography of Rosalind Blumenstein, um, which is just gorgeous. I really want to print. (laughs) But uh, this connection to elders, is getting talked about a lot right now as it tends to be quite rare for younger trans people as Tori Peters writes about in her novel, Detransition Baby. Um, How have you met these icons and how do you approach working with them? Wow, that's a great question. Liz, uh, I I feel like the, the many elders in my life prepared me for getting close to Liz. And in, in 2020, creating the series while the world around us stopped and changed, I was so immersed in the 
I was so immersed in, in Liz. I felt so close to her, just listening to her words, reading her words. Um, I just felt spiritually close to her at some point, intertwined, I would say. And we worked from, we worked on this series from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I would, you know, for at least three months in the summer, dream about Liz as Liz with Liz's family members in my, you know, unconscious. And I felt so close to her through, I, I feel like her spirit was never laid to rest actually. And that there was, uh, I guess, some divine force kind of pushing this project forward over all these years and I feel like a, a messenger for that. I was always captured, my imagination was always captured by elders as a young person and I always felt familiarity and, and comfort around elders. I think part of it was growing up with a great-grandmother uh, being a young Jewish person with a great grandmother and, you know, her her relatives who were in their 90s, who I was very close to, and being a young person who was a mensch and always spent time with them playing cards, I felt that they were these magical time travelers who spoke all these different languages and came from this different world. Um, it was kind of a way out as a kid, just in my imagination, just knowing that there were, that humans travel through time and, and live long lives. So when I was 18 and met Flawless Sabrina, I was primed for that. And ultimately, Flawless introduced me to Holly, Holly introduced me to Alexis Del Lago. And I, I feel like the, those relationships are a constellation of introductions from each other. I always talk to Marlo Monique La Fantastique, who's in Chicago, who was one of the original members of the House of Labasia. She was very close with Crystal. And Marlo introduced me to Holly White. They both have little cameos along with Rosalind <laughs> in the Making the Change magazine and Blade mm -hmm. the Dale. <laughs> because we needed releases, we needed sign-offs from anybody who appeared on the screen. So I was like, I have to go in my network to find some of these models from that era who appeared in trans magazines. And that worked out really well. Um, those relationships fortify me in the present and gives me a sense of purpose and I, on a personal level it gives me my life a sense of purpose like if I'm not on the phone calling these ladies you know um and I ultimately hope that I'm paying it forward and that when I'm an old lady young people will um show up and be interested and in the intergenerational exchange, I feel like I'm entering a point in life when we're starting to realize how much 
that energy feeds us and keeps us going. Yeah. And it really is an exchange that goes both ways. As seeing it as a young person always and feeling like, oh my God, this, it just strengthens your spirit and makes you realize that you can live into old age and that survival is uh, it's a kind of game in a way, you know? Yeah. On a similar note, I feel like, um, you know, as trans people living in a increasingly dystopic present, we kind of, when we create things, we tend to go one way or another, either it's like the cyborg feminist future of the matrix, or it's like um, right. looking totally towards the past, like in Shola von Reinhold's new novel, Lot, um, which if you haven't read, by the way, I'm completely obsessed with, and you should. Um, I love, is that L-O-T-E? Yeah, L-O-T-E. Um, but you've done some future work yourself, like in Mother Comes to Venus. Um, but yeah. m so much of your work, and especially obviously The Lady and the Dale, is grounded in the past. So what, what do we kind of gain from the conjuring of the spirits of our forgotten ancestors? What do we get from that sort of look backwards? Context. And with Liz's story in particular, we, we go all the way back to Charles Hamilton in 1746 and all the way forward to um, 2020 and the many trans and non-binary people who are continuing to create visibility and organize. Um, and I think that Liz's story is a microcosm of so many themes that continue to impact trans life today. And when we look at the figures who came before her, it's hard to imagine her reception being any different than it was. And you realize actually like that there is a kind of slow progress over time and Liz's ability to identify as a woman in court in 1976 is in and of itself a victory. Um, I feel like the future is better and worse simultaneously, that progress happens alongside opposition and that our work is to be on the right side of history and to push it forward and that we have to you know that it's all hands on deck and we have to reach the broadest possible audience humanizing stories of gender diversity um i feel like that's the work that we have to do to create a more hopeful future um, I, I think so often of Flawless dying during the Trump era and how hard that was um, for her to leave this earth not knowing if her grandkids and kids would be okay. And I think sometimes about the fact that we could see a tremendous amount of progress and see it wiped away and then maybe we'll see 
progress again. And, you know, that there might be multiple setbacks in our, in our lifetimes and we are not impervious. We are not uh, safe from tyranny, from autocracy and fascism. Obviously this kind of post-truth era is pre-fascist. <laughs> I think that's widely being talked about in the US. And there will be no rest. Um, I, I think that it takes all of us doing this work together. I'm so grateful, honestly, too. Um, eight years ago, making transparent, um, it was such a different ecosystem. And it was in many ways like the one show of its time. And today there, Liz's story is possible because there are so many stories mm -hmm. and we can get to the more complicated and more nuanced stories. And ultimately I think people will tune in to people who are not on board for trans rights may watch Liz's story and, and realize that they have a point of connection that they hadn't ever considered. Yeah. Well, obviously everybody needs to tune in and watch it. Um, and that's on HBO Max in America. Is it available anywhere outside America? Yet, oh, yeah. will it be? It is. <laughs> it is. It's. I. I believe that it's all over. I've been talking to journalists in South America, in Europe, Eastern Europe, um, all over. Oh my okay. gosh! Yeah. So it's yeah, it's making its way. Liz is making her way around the world. <laughs> I'm loving um, every moment of it. <laughs> I'm sure she would love the attention. <laughs> um, yeah. What is kind of next on your um, on your agenda? What other, I mean, obviously you're in the kind of heat of promotion right now around this show, but um, is there anything you can talk about that's in the works or is it very like hush hush? <laughs> I'm very excited right now about telling stories about real life trans folks. I, I feel like uh, we are undeniable. There's, there's no kind of uh, arguing with people who have actually existed. <laughs> and there's, it, there's something um, just undeniable about Liz. It's sort of like scripted characters. You could just dismiss as an extrapolation of coastal liberal elites. Um, but when it comes to people who have actually lived and breathed and walked on the planet, there's no arguing. You can't argue that those folks didn't exist. So I'm excited about the, the possibility um, in documentary and I, I, I think I'm gonna stick with it for a little while. That's and that's great. all I should say for now. So there's, things, <laughs> there's things in the works and there's things that I'm very excited about. I also am really um, committed to amplifying the stories of sex workers 
And I think that in the trans community, we're so uh, impacted by sex work, the history of trans women, and that it's, it continues to be a stigmatized position. And I think that that's a realm that I'm very interested in, in moving into, kind of telling the stories of trans sex workers and um, bringing more, more light to the complexity of trans experience. Um, yeah. Well, that's very, very exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to take up your whole entire day. I know you got out of bed for this uh, quite yeah. early in, uh, in LA time, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I'm so excited that you'll be the first uh, OFTV interview. I can't wait. I can't wait for the new season. And thank you so much for your work, Morgan. You're just completely one of a kind and the magic that you've created and put into the universe is indispensable. Oh, thank you. And deep, deep gratitude for, for you, for the love that you put out there on Twitter and knowing you over the past 10 years has been a personal miracle for me. <laughs> and I know that will be, I know that will be, you know, moving into the future together. Absolutely. Pretty soon we'll have another 10 years to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. And hopefully sometime during that 10 years, Framing Agnes will finally come out into the world. <laughs> oh, it will. <laughs> Get ready. This has been another episode of One from the Vaults. Again, I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced here in London, England. Special thanks to Zachary Jecker for taking the time out of her very busy schedule. I'll see you next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. <laughs>